This is the Strike Mesh Boil Podcast, presented by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. This week we learn about barrel aging beers, judge a double IPA, and PJ from Navigation is back. Welcome back to Strike Mash Boil. I'm Marco, president of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, and I'm joined by my co-host, Phil. Hey, Marco. So as the intro segment uh, at the top of the show said, we've got PJ back from Navigation. We're going to judge a double IPA. Mr. Matt Savage is here. But first, Carl and Switzer are back. And this week, we're going to talk barrel aging beers and how to get started at home. Mike, Carl, welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thanks. All right. So we're talking barrel aging. Uh, so this is a, a topic that has, you know, probably its own series of shows that we could do on it. Uh, people have written entire books about barrel aging. Uh, so obviously we're not going to be able to cover it all. Uh, but we, we thought we could take a little bit of time to talk about our experiences with barrel aging and basically an introduction to um, having a, a barrel aging program at home. Fortunately, all of us have done some barrel aging in one way or another, both clean barrel aging and sour programs. Uh, but barrel aging isn't just as easy as using a regular fermenter. There are a lot of things to be considered before you dive in. So let's talk a little bit about some of the considerations uh, that you want to take before you get into barrel aging. And, and I'm going to kick us off with the, what I think is the first one you want to think about, and it's what type of barrel aging you want to do, whether you're going to go straight into sour aging or if you're going to do a clean aging program. So you guys want to talk a little bit about your experiences and how you decided what type of program you were going to kick off before you even got barrels, before even thinking about sizes of barrels. So I did clean beers. I've never done sour beers in barrels. The biggest thing for me was deciding what kind of barrel, whether it be a rum barrel, a bourbon barrel, a rye whiskey barrel. Now you can get like maple syrup barrels you can get tequila barrels you can get all kinds of stuff so it's not even just you know what kind of barrel but what kind of beer because if you're going to be brewing uh say saisons and you put it in a bourbon barrel that bourbon's going to overwhelm that saison versus if you get a tequila barrel and you're doing a imperial stout that may not pair very well with with tequila uh, maybe actually that might go really well but, <laughs> My first, uh, my first barrels I got from Tuttletown. They make Hudson Valley Baby Bourbon, and I got bourbon barrels because I was doing stouts. Um, you know, standard issue. This was probably five years ago. Everybody was doing bourbon barrel stouts, and that was easy for me. Just bourbon barrel stout. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, and and for somebody who's thinking about getting into barrel aging, if you're going to go the clean barrel route. You want to have a barrel that is either a virgin barrel or you want to have something that is first emptied, which means that whatever liquor was in it has been emptied and nothing was in it before, you know, after that liquor was emptied. Uh, but the, the, the key thing with having a, a clean barrel program is that you're not going to be able to repetitive, you're not, that barrel is not going to last you infinity for clean barrels. Uh, so when I started my barrel program, I had sour beer as, you know, a little bit different than Phil. I had sour beer as my end game. That's what I ultimately wanted to do. But I've got these fresh, really great barrels ready to go. So I started with clean beers and did sort of the Bourbon County mindset, which was start with a stout, stout comes out, 
barley wine goes in, barley wine comes out, and I might get one. I think I did a, uh, a transitional beer for each one of them, which would be like a Saison or a Belgian Triple or something like that that was starting to get my barrel used to some of the characteristics I was looking for post that. So that's the route that I went because I knew I wanted to go sour, but I didn't want to jump sour right away. I, I knew these barrels had a lot to offer to clean beer, so I started there and then transitioned to sour. I think going with the, the higher gravity beer at, at first is a good idea, mainly because it's higher in alcohol, but you need something big and robust to, to, to battle the either if there's whiskey in it or, or the wood itself. So in, in my case, we it was sort of a, an opportunity thing where somebody had barrels available and it was a, a whiskey barrel that had then aged cider in it. So we kind this of, is, you know, I, I, I you know, cause I, I know where this is fucking going <laughs> and it was like the happiest accident you could ever have. And it pisses me off to this day. It just, it makes me angry today because of how accidentally beautiful the beer was that you guys made that thing. So I'm gonna let you keep going, but I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying how angry I am about it. <laughs> we, we talk about the plan about going from clean to, to bugs or, 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 you know, fuck the plan because it, it you know, the bugs will do what they want to do. Uh, you can try to mitigate it as much as possible, but um, so anyway, we, we went with a triple, uh, you know, fairly high gravity beer. We thought uh, since it already been used for whiskey and cider, that the Oak would be subdued. Um, and I thought the cider would play well with the triple, a more paler, paler beer. So we aged the triple. Uh, I realize I'm saying um all the time now. That's okay. I spend hours and hours and hours <laughs> cutting that shit out. It's all true story. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. <laughs> so we did. So we aged the triple, and I believe the uh, you know the first round they were they were clean. So it 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 did pull some bugs through it, and eventually it soured in the bottle. And it soured very nicely. So we, we must have pulled the beer soon enough. It actually won beer of the day. So, I mean, it was it was like... It was so good. Well, I mean, it was it was really good. It, it's probably gone past its prime in the bottles now. We still have the same barrel. We immediately went, all right, so this has been bugged. So now we inoculate it with everything we got. Kind of neglected it over the past year or so. Uh, I did... I was able to top it off once uh, to to alleviate that headspace, but basically, you know, our plan was right out the window. We we were going for a clean beer, and we were going to eventually go to a bug beer, but it just happened much much faster. And it basically sits there. We kind of solar it. It's mostly just evaporation. I'm not even sure we have bottled another beer from this barrel since then. Mike, what's your what what when you were decided to get into barrel aging what program did you want to get into the interesting thing about barrel aging and barrels is that it's both an ingredient and a piece of equipment so you know unlike just something you're throwing into your mash i mean this can change over time and carl just hit on it i mean you could start off wanting a clean beer and you could pick up bugs from your barrel if it's not clean and that can completely change you know what you're trying to do um i actually started off uh, I did a few, uh, not barrel aged, but uh, incorporating oak. And I think for people that are just getting into it or seeing whether they like wood, wood aged beer, there's great options to use. I wouldn't, I'd stay away from chips because they, they work very quickly and it's, it's harder to control. Uh, cubes, oak cubes are great. Oak spirals are great, but it's a great way to, you know, get your feet wet, um, get an oak character into a beer 
uh, in a really controlled way without a big expense and without a lot of equipment. Um, I started off doing that with with some stouts and uh, played around with some Belgian beers, just trying to get some uh, you know French oak character into them. Um, but got my feet wet doing that, and then decided I wanted to make traditional lambic. So I just went full in. I got a 25 gallon uh, used Zinfandel barrel from a club member. And uh, it had been used so much for Zinfandel that it was basically neutral. Um, boiled water in my boil kettle, uh, filled it up, steamed it just to kind of get it expanded so that it wouldn't have any leaks uh, to, to kind of clean it out, even though I was going to inoculate it anyway just to get whatever was in there uh, killed and out of there. Um, and then brewed a, a shit ton <laughs> of Lambic over several weekends. Uh, filled a whole bunch of carboys. Uh, you guys actually, the Advent beer I do is uh, the baby of that. I uh, started, started that, I don't even remember, what is it, nine years ago now, or crazy amount of time. Um, but I filled that barrel. Um, I inoculated it with all sorts of bugs. And the great thing about a barrel is that once you inoculate it, those bugs persist and live in there. They actually kind of get into the wood. So once you have a bugged uh, barrel, it's going to be that way pretty much forever. You'd have to remove that layer of wood on the inside. Um, but Solera, right, and I guess I'll, I'll walk us right into it, um, is removing some beer. Uh, from the old beer that's been aged there for a period of time and then adding young on top. And so you're just going through these cycles. So you're getting that old character, um, but obviously you're able to take some from it and then top it back up. One thing that, I'll, which is a little bit more of an advanced technique, um, as you get into bigger, bigger barrel sizes, you get less surface area. So we talked about it before off offline, but if you have a small five gallon barrel, that's going to contribute a lot of character a lot faster than if you have a 25 gallon barrel, um, just based on the surface area. And the other thing to think about is oxygen exposure. If you're trying to do sour beers and you don't want to get acetic, uh, you want to limit oxygen exposure. And, and what I did with my barrels, I and this kind of helps with you know evaporation. Carl was talking about topping up. You don't want to leave a lot of headspace there because you're getting oxygen. Um, and I just put barrel wax um, over the top third of my barrel. And that really prevents um, that oxygen exchange up there. So you don't have to be as uh, diligent about making sure that you don't have headspace. But really, it's you're getting a little bit of character from the wood, not a lot, but really the purpose of a barrel when you're doing, you know, a sour beer or a lambic is just giving a nice big environment for all those bugs to kind of live and persist. And doing something like a Solera is amazing because you're getting a different character every time, you know, you take a share from that and add new in. And you can always change up the recipe as you're going along. You could keep it consistent if you wanted to, or uh, you can really just play around. Um, so it just gives you kind of a canvas to work with to create really unique beers. So really the first step in saying, I want to get into barrel aging beer is understanding what type of barrel aging you want to do. And we, we've heard a few different methods here. We've heard of, you know, going all clean, going clean and then transitioning to sour. Uh, we've heard about the accidental sour and how to pivot from that. And then just saying, I just want to do sour. So when you think about your barrel aging program, the next step in really executing it is the size of barrel. Now, you heard Mike talk about this. Uh, you, you, know, you can create a barrel aged character with things like wood chips, wood cubes, wood spirals, right? But you have to, again, it's all about the plan, right? Uh, when you have more surface area to wood, you're going to extract more wood character quickly. Um, so that applies to if you're using wood chips, 
really, really fast. Oak spirals, just as fast. Oak cubes, really quick. But your size of the barrel is going to matter too. So you're starting this barrel program. Barrels come in anything from one liter barrels, right? You can get a, you can get a tiny little one liter barrel up to 55 gallons. And so you, you've got to decide which one's going to be right for your space, the type of brewing system you have, are you going to be able to fill the damn thing, and how much time you have. And, you know, logically, we all started, I, I think the first barrel I got was 10 gallons, which actually I think is a really great size for home brewers. But if you jump into it with a five-gallon barrel, the thing you got to remember is that you're going to brew a beer, you're going to put it in there, and if it's a clean beer and you, it's got a lot of fresh oak character, you risk, if that beer is in there for too long, you risk trashing that beer with too many tannins and, and way too much wood character. So you've got to be, you got to educate yourself on how much time it's going to be in there and then having a plan for what's going to replace it. Yeah, you pretty much are, you are brewing beer number one, fermenting it, brewing beer number two. And as it's fermenting, beer number one is in the barrel. And in a five-gallon size, uh, my experience is I use some Short Path Rum Barrel. Short Path is a fantastic local distillery. But their rum is its a pot-stilled rum. It's super fragrant and flavorful. And I found about two to three weeks in that barrel, and it needed to come the fuck out. So, you know, if you don't have something to replace it right away, then, you know, you could risk uh, ruining the barrel. You can get mold in a barrel and, and it can go south pretty fast. So, I mean, you can go a couple days, maybe a week. It's fine. And there are ways of, you know, top it off with, um, uh, some like citric acid solutions or, or something like that to kind of save the barrel, but you are going to be extracting those oak flavors. So if you've only done one turn in a five gallon barrel, it's only been two weeks and it's a freshly dumped spirit barrel, you can probably get three, maybe four beers out of it before you lose all that oak character. So if you're going to put a storage solution in it, you're just going to ruin it. But yeah, you got to have a plan. You got to have a schedule and you got to be Johnny on the spot and brewing those big beers and have them ready to go. And then you got to have kegs ready for them or bottles or whatever it is. Yeah. I think you, you treat it like a, a pitch of yeast, right? Yeah. I mean, you do, you do a batch and then you got to use that yeast pretty quick. You don't want to leave that in the fridge too long. Just like that barrel. You don't want to leave it empty too long. But one thing, you know, I, I heard you talk about, you know, you get too much, you extract too much. One thing that's always your friend, and it, it comes back to kind of that lambic method, is blending. So if you ever did run into a situation where you you pulled that out and you said, oh, my God, this is, you know, punch in your face, oak, it's way too prominent, you could easily make an unoaked version of that and then blend those two together. You know, if you had a five-gallon that was, that was over-oaked, you could make a five-gallon batch of, of just neutral, regular stout and then mix those two kegs together and probably wind up. I mean, you could even play with it and really get it dialed in exactly where you wanted it. So blending is always your friend if you if you screw up. <laughs> True story. Uh, you, you absolutely can, can solve a lot of challenges, especially when you're experimenting, uh, because oftentimes when you're you know playing around with different bacterias, oak characters, souring, uh, all those things you can very easily there's a, there's a line that can be crossed really quickly <laughs> uh, but there's always a method to come back from it and that is you know taming it down with blending and that's a, a brilliant idea and i would go so far as saying brew extra to begin with mm -hmm. just so you already have some of that same batch of beer clean and you know standing by unbarrel aged 
that you can blend. That tip is typically well. That tip is typically so you have something to top the barrel with. Because what's what's great about doing multiple beers in a barrel is, as you're pulling beers out, the extraction time slows. So you're, you're, it's just taking a little bit longer for the beer to penetrate the wood or those deep flavors in the wood are, are taking more time to come out of them and into the beer. So once you're on beer three, beer four, clean beers, you know, it, they can sit in there a little bit longer than what that first one did. So chances are you're going to run into what Mike was talking about earlier, which is that evaporation. And, you know, for you to have a little bit of extra is going to help you top off with the same beer that you are. You, you could make a little bit of extra, but you've already got some that you can top off that that barrel with. Uh, and I've gone to a point with, you know, I, I have um, all of my barrels at this point are sour barrels, and they'll sit in there for 18 months. And I've got to have a plan for topping off, which uh, in some cases is the original beer. In some cases, it's brewing a little bit extra. Uh, but something I want to make sure that folks also know when you're planning your barrel program. So you've decided on the type of program you want. You've picked the size of the barrel. Talk about a little bit of preparation before you're going to put anything inside that barrel. Uh, Mike talked a little bit about this before. And, and I know Carl did this when you had your accidental sour. Uh, but you, you want to do a little bit of work to that barrel because it, it, chances are it's been empty for a period of time. And even if it's an alcohol, even if it had alcohol in it before, there's always the chance that something got in there. And so me, what I've done is I'll boil water, fill that barrel to the brim with boiling water. And, you know, there's some controversy there that it's going to eat up some of that character of the barrel the first time. And, and yes, it certainly will extract some of the flavors there. Uh, but it's going to get it's going to be your best shot, in my opinion, of getting any of the, the bugs out now if that barrel was a soured barrel i don't care how much boiling water and how long you put it in there that is not coming out yeah that that barrel is soured for life but if it was a clean barrel and a little bit of something got in there you've got a good chance of uh, getting rid of it by filling it with some boiling water in preparation and what i do is fill it to the top boiling water and then let it sit until it comes back down to temperature and then I just dump it all out, and then I'll immediately fill it with whatever I'm going to fill it with. The other really important thing you're doing there is you're hydrating it too. That's because yes. you, you you want to test that thing for leaks. The last thing you want to do is make some you know big elaborate amazing stout, put it in your barrel, and then it just starts leaking all over the damn place. Um, so yeah, the most important thing you're doing there is really hydrating that wood, making sure that it's leak free. If you do have a wood or a barrel that's that's in kind of rough shape, you can actually use barrel wax too to kind of take care of any little cracks but it's amazing what a real hot you know boiling water uh leaving it there for a while what it can do to the wood to really expand it and make sure it's all sealed up yeah I've, I've, we've actually had some guys in the club that have encountered that and and where they have a barrel that's hydrated and fresh and then it's emptied and it sits empty for a little while and then they like you know, fill it with beer and all of a sudden it's beer pouring out of the head of that thing. And it'll eventually <laughs> seal. It'll eventually soak up mm -hmm. enough of that beer, but you've lost half of it in the process. Yep. Luckily, I haven't had to truly rehydrate a barrel, but, you know, that's quite a few uh, steps involved. I, I know Mike has helped some some guys on the, uh, the Facebook group um, about sort of, you know, you do this hot boil, leave it in the barrel, let it sit there, drop down to room temperature, and it should swell, but even if you still have leaks, you can sit 
you know, a puddle of that hot liquid on top of the head, let that absorb on that side, flip it around, do the same thing on the other side. So you're really hydrating all ends of the barrel. And usually though, you know, the, the sides of the barrels that actually open, which are the heads, um, mm-hmm. make sure that those swell and make the, make the good connection like they originally did when they were built. Yeah, and and a couple other things to remember too is is you need to have the the proper foundation for your barrels. Once they're filled, uh, you can't just rest a barrel on the ground. Uh, you actually have to support a barrel on each the head and the foot of it. If you're just resting on the ground and the barrel sitting on its belly, that weight will eventually start to push in the staves, and then you'll create a warp in your barrel and then it'll start to leak and it's uh it's a nightmare i'm not speaking from any sort of experience uh that's not happened to me before but having the proper rack to hold your barrels uh is really important uh but something i want to uh, dive into you with you guys is um you know i've i've started a barrel program Uh, i'm I'm talking from the the guy that wants to get into this i've started a, a barrel program i've filled my barrel I've now pulled the beer out. What's next? What do I do? So Phil touched on this a little while ago. Have a plan for the next beer that's going to go in. But there's some other options. There's some other things that you can do too. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about some of those in-between options that you can do to you know, get your barrel for, you know, prepared for the next beer? I'd say one thing we should touch on too is how the hell do you get that beer, that beer out of that barrel? Or how the hell do you move that barrel when it's full <laughs> of beer? Because... Uh, they're pretty heavy. Uh, you know, you have a 26 gallon barrel. It's pretty heavy on its own. You fill that thing with beer. Um, so you want to do some pre-planning about where is this thing going to live? Um, how are you going to get the beer into it? How are you going to get the beer out? I decided to build myself with two by fours. Uh, I built a cart and then put some really heavy casters on the bottom. And I made sure I built that cart that it was, uh, over the height of a corny keg. So I made sure I had enough elevation, but you know you can use a pump on the ground. You can you can do a lot of different methods of trying to get it the beer up out of it. That was really the simplest thing for me is having that up high, uh, and then I can just rely on gravity with a siphon. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. But make sure you figure out how the hell you're going to do those two things because the last thing you want is you know a barrel someplace you don't want it and too heavy to move. It's it's a great call because uh, when I first got into barrel aging, I had my 10 gallon barrel and I just had my regular auto siphon that I used with my other homebrew stuff. So I used to, you know, people have heard me say this before. My kids think I'm the strongest man in the world. So I have to prove every once in a while that I'm the strongest man in the world. And that's by lifting this filled 10 gallon barrel uh, and nearly throwing my back out (laughs) to put it on the counter somewhere or on something high so that I can auto siphon into something else. And I will tell you, uh, that is a horrible idea. Nobody should try to do it because it sucks. It's not It's not any fun whatsoever. So there are uh, these things called uh, bulldogs. It's basically a uh, kind of like a pseudo pressurized racking cane. There are some plans out there for some homebrew versions, which I was looking for mine the other day, and I seem to think it might be at Marco's house now that I think about it. Yep, he's shaking his head yes. So uh, all it is is it's a, uh, a stainless steel racking cane in a little uh, stainless steel tee, and you've got a rubber stopper on one side. The racking cane goes through the middle of it, and then there's a gas post, gas ball lock post on it, and that lets you get gas in, and the racking cane 
you know, grabs the beer from the bottom. Uh, really simple. Uh, I think it cost all of like 40 or 50 bucks with stuff from brewhardware.com. And that's, uh, that's a, a homebrewer way of what the pros actually do. Uh, some of them will use pumps, like Mike said. You're not using your homebrew pump, though, the, the pump that's on your brew stands. Those will cavitate, and which will uh, oxidize your beer. So you want to make sure you use the right kind of pump, a self-priming. Peristaltic. That's the one. Uh, you want to use one of those. You don't want to use the one on your brew stand. You don't want to oxidize your beer. But uh, you can use those, and then uh, the the bulldogs are the uh, other way to go, and they're pretty simple. Yeah, and, and they're awesome. I mean, just a little bit of pressure, and it pushes the beer right out of there like nothing. Right. And you can have the barrel on the floor, and it'll go up high enough to get up over a cor- corny keg, and yeah, you're good to go. Uh, yeah. So then after that, you know, uh, Phil, you talked a little bit about you've got these. Uh, citric acid solutions that once you empty the barrel, if you don't have a beer to go into it right away, uh, you can create a citric acid solution, which is citric acid and metabisulfite, I think is Mm -hmm. the other part of it. And there's um, recipes out there that show you how much per gallon uh, to use. And it's really simple. And you take that, you mix it with water, and you fill the barrel, and it will basically hold your barrel and keep it hydrated for a period of time. Uh, so that that's a method that you can do. Uh, there's also some interesting things. You know, we talked about if you are not into sour beers, and, and going taking the plunge into sour beer does add some additional complexity of bacteria in your brew, brew house and starting to separate equipment and having things on other sides of the, the house so that you don't infect other stuff. So you may not want to get into sour beers at all. So there are some methods to say like, hey, I'm, I'm getting the to the end. I'm on beer four. It's the end of the life cycle of this barrel. There are some tips and tricks and things that you could do to try to bring life back to that barrel. Have you guys tried any of that stuff where you're adding... Uh, a gallon of liquor to the barrel have you have you tried that no i haven't I haven't tried it but obviously you can you can buy some cheap handle of whiskey just dump it right in much like you would do the hot water and try to and swish it around and let it try to reabsorb into the wood and and sort of gain that that sort of whiskey oak combination back again it's it seems like it's a an option that can be done but i haven't tried it myself yeah there's a lot of different things you could i mean i know that professionally they'll like scrape barrels they'll rechar barrels one thing i think we should say because i think i read this in gordon strong's book was a story about burning sulfur sticks and sulfur sticks are one means of cleaning a barrel and you burn this sulfur stick and then you lower it down into the barrel and the the sulfur smoke or whatever dissipates and kills what's in there the story is an unfortunate one they had a fresh liquor barrel that was filled with high proof fume and when they lowered that sulfur stick in there, that barrel exploded and almost killed somebody. So uh, don't do that. Try the boiling do water. Do not do that. Yeah. And if you do the boiling water, make sure that you use you know good proper gloves and don't get boiling water too because that would be terrible also. So don't blow yourself up or burn yourself because of our podcast, please. Yeah, and, and all right, so if you have a five-gallon barrel, though, and, and you want to try this liquor method uh, to add some character back to it, it's not that complicated. And um, you don't have you don't have a ton of time. Like, you can't let the liquor sit in there for a long period of time. But, you know, let's say hypothetically you were doing a, a bourbon barrel. You can get 
a handle of cheap bourbon, we'll call old granddad or something like that, something cheap, not the 114, that's good drinking, <laughs> but the, the really cheap old granddad stuff. Uh, and basically what you're doing is in the five gallon barrel, you'd get a basically a handle, you'd pour it into that, once your beer is emptied, you'd pour it into the barrel and you'd uh, put the bung back on to seal it up and then you'd put it on its head. And you're basically allowing, you want to cover the head of the, the barrel and you want to let it absorb into those crevices. Then you're going to flip it over and you're going to let it sit on the other side uh, for a period of time. And then you're going to rest it on its belly and then you're going to roll it one quarter a day until you've gotten uh, all the way around. Uh, and basically after about a week, uh, you would have gotten some good character into back into the barrel. And that's just a... Um, a, a really easy, quick trick to try to get some of that character back into the barrel. And it works relatively well. We know that um, alcohol, um, you know, is is will help to clean it up a little bit too. Uh, so it'll buy you some time. It'll keep it hydrated for that period of time and, and reintroduce some of those characters so you can start to move forward with the clean barrel program and maybe get one or two or three uh, more uses out of that barrel and then you could try it again but you know there is going to be a point there is definitely a point of diminishing returns where that's not going to work so hot anymore and you can keep trying it uh, and you can do what uh, this is going to you know phil's going to kill me like he normally does but you can do what trillium did and just pour alcohol directly into beers uh, like you're <laughs> uh, like you're not supposed to uh, but you can just allegedly, do that and, allegedly. Uh, no, oh uh, excuse me I, I apologize allegedly pour alcohol directly into beers uh, and, uh, you know, get that character in there as well, too. I've had uh, these 10-gallon Tuttletown barrels, then I had uh, the Short Path barrels, and, and frankly, I, I've gotten to the point where I feel like as much fun as barrels are, I think I've reached the point where they're more work than I'm willing to put into them. And I, I like my oak spirals now. Grab an oak spiral, they're pretty cheap. Put in a Ziploc bag full of uh, good, you know, not good, but decent liquor whether it be rum or bourbon or rye or apple brandy or even maple syrup and you can build out all kinds of cool flavor profiles toss those in beer and you can end up with multiple barrels worth of beer off of you know 20 bucks in in uh oak spirals you don't have to yeah, have but some of us like doing things that are really unnecessary, really, yeah. expensive, complicated. Uh, you hey, know, I'm with you. Method without with diminishing returns. We like to punish ourselves. The first time I did barrels, I went all in. I bought two 10 gallon barrels and brewed 30 gallons of beer so I could fill them and then have some on the side. And then I went on travel for uh, eight months and definitely did some blending. Well, what's what's amazing about when you get to the the sour side of things? is you end up with a bacteria in your barrel that nobody on the planet has nobody uh, because between all the stuff you're like for me and my solar barrel between the dregs i've added to it the individual bacterias i've added to it the shit that just in my basement <laughs> like this uh, i've got a culture there that i've babied for years that yes i'm torturing myself to keep this thing going but nobody else has it. And it's really cool. And I know it's the same for Mike. I mean, Mike's, the the flavors that he has in the Lambics that we had are unique to him and they're awesome. And they're his, they're nobody else's. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool, actually. 
I, I think that's one of the, the best parts of being a home brewer. You know, there's so much great available craft beer out there, but there's something to be said about really, you know, creating your own, and you said it yourself, your own house character, right? Where if you drank, you know, my Lambic in a lineup of beers, you know, 30 beers, I'd be able to pick mine out because you just, you understand that house character or, you know, if it's a lager that you're making or if it's a wood aged, you know, stout that you've done and just being able to create that unique flavor that, this is the only place in the world you can get. And that, I mean, that's really what's exciting. And you can get as crazy as you want and throw as many variables at the wall. The risk is that the more variables you throw at the wall is the more risk of, you know, screwing something up. You know, you could have an amazing uh, Lambic and you could have that in a barrel that uh, has a wrong, you know, culture of bugs or, you know, you don't have a tight bung on it and you get oxygen and you get acetic. So every time you do that, you're, you know, you're gambling a little bit, but again, like Carl had, you know, sometimes you have these accidental, you know, miracles and you wind up with just something amazing that you didn't intend. The two best breweries on the planet, in my opinion, uh, depend on their house microflora and that's Hill Farmstead and Cantillon, mm -hmm. uh, the two top breweries, again, in my opinion, and Cantillon's been in that location for how long? And they have whatever's in the air that's inoculating their beer all the time. And it's remarkable what it can do. And, and what you said with that, they don't, they aren't adding, I mean, they're adding bugs from the air, but really when you, when it comes down to the microbiology, it's what lives in those barrels. And that's, what's cool about having your own barrel, um, that you, that just persists is that, that, you know, that culture, that population lives in there. You don't have to add any bugs. You just add beer there and the bugs are already there. It's your own blend, um, that you can't get anywhere else. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. So uh, hopefully after uh, listening to this, uh, you guys are inspired to start a, a barrel aging program and and if you have questions about it please feel free to reach out to us either on the facebook page or instagram uh, ask whatever questions you have we're happy to answer them uh, we did not cover even the surface of what barrel aging uh, is all about but uh, we'd love to be able to talk to you guys more about it uh, mike carl again really appreciate you guys taking the time to chat with us uh, an awesome conversation I love talking about anything that has to do with barrel aging uh, and love to hear what you guys are doing so i appreciate you guys taking the time anytime thanks guys if you like what you've been hearing on our show, hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast service. And if you have any ideas or feedback for us, leave us a review or shoot us a DM on Instagram at StrikeMashBoil. Or join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. All right, time again for this week's beer review. Each week, we're going to review a beer submitted to us by a member of the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club or from one of our listeners. Our guest judge is going to walk us through the judging process as if this were a competition. All they know is the category of the beer, which is this week, 22A Double IPA. Marco, holy shit, we got an IPA. And uh, so shockingly, that our first IPA is not a New England IPA. Right. It's a double IPA. Yeah, you go into our uh, competition, if you're in that IPA category... It'll be like 32 IPAs and 29 of them are New England IPAs. So it's uh, it's awesome to we're going to have a just standard double IPA. I can't wait. Yeah. Um, all right. So joining us again uh, is uh, founder of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, Matt. Uh, Matt, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
All right, so Matt, uh, we're going to jump into this, uh, and so we want you to give us a quick description of 22A double IPA. But before you do that, something that I noticed when I was popping this open and pouring into my glass is I noticed that the bottle was filled almost to the rim, almost touching the cap. And I don't think we've talked about this before, but in uh, on a score sheet in a competition, it's always noted if the fill of the bottle was normal. Can you talk to us about why fill matters and not you fill the fill uh, of the bottle yeah sure yeah so sort of, normally it's just something that we we note on the score sheet so that we can use it for future reference you know normally a high fill uh won't necessarily uh, hurt anything, especially because a lot of things are filled with beer guns now and that type of thing. But if you had a high fill in a bottle conditioned beer, it might affect the carbonation levels and stuff like that. Um, but especially on a low fill, if when we pop the bottle, the carbonation isn't there, that could be possibly because of the low fill. And also, if we note oxidation, that could also be part of the, the low fill. So we just kind of note it on there because it's the first thing that you do as part of the judging process so you can use that information for later. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I have um, was really curious about that at first. And again, it's just about two things, right? You need a little bit of that headspace in the bottle if you're priming in the bottle, right? So if you fill it too much and you're priming in the bottle, it's probably not going to prime properly. And then if you've got too much space, you're introducing may potentially too much oxygen. Yep, exactly. All right. So then uh, talk to us about 22A double IPA. All right. Yeah. So the American double IPA uh, category is, you know, a category that's big on hop aroma, hop flavor. You know, it's a very, very hop forward style. One of the bigger things about it is the drinkability of it. So even though it's highly hopped and the alcohol content can be high, fairly high as well, it needs to be not necessarily crushable like a, you know, American lager would be in or that type of thing, but definitely something you could drink a few of. And, you know, that's why I think uh, a lot of times it becomes dangerous when you go to breweries that have really good double IPAs because you could drink a 7 or 8% double IPA as if it was, you know, a normal 5% lager or something like that. Because really, if it's a sipper, it becomes more on the verge of an American barley wine at that point, and I don't think it's to style for a double IPA. It shouldn't be cloyingly sweet. It shouldn't be overly aggressive as far as the hop bitterness goes, but there should be enough bitterness to dry out your palate so that the next sip is you know something that you want to take part of and especially you know the hop character can range from citrus and you know uh fruity berry type of thing to more resinous kind of uh dank type of uh hop hop quality to it but it's definitely a hop driven style where you know malt is just there to be the backbone you know uh, the hops are running the show as far as this style goes yeah and i think this is where folks that are drinking new age IPAs are not really used to is a double IPA should have, you know, a balanced but assertive bitterness, which is very different than what we're used to with new New England IPAs. And that's what keeps you wanting to drink more, right? You want to quench that thirst after your palate's been totally dried out. All right. So let's, um, Let's dive into this one. I've got it in my glass, and I'm smelling it, and I want to hear what you think about it. Yeah, right off the bat, I'm getting like a big, like kind of herbaceous uh, plant type of material aroma. It's definitely got some like citrus fruit in the back end there, kind of like an orange grapefruit, but it's like big time uh, herbaceous though. Like there's like a dank, I guess, is the word that people use a lot now. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I wonder what the like prominent hop is or the hop combo because it's pretty unique like i don't i can't really peg uh the types of hops that he's using in there yeah off the aroma itself I, i'm not pegging one that i can pick off the off the bat either 
I mean, it's got kind of a, I mean, if I was to guess, I'd say Citra, but without There's tasting it. The cat piss. <laughs> yeah. The flavor of it as well is kind of herbal, herbaceous. It's got definitely like uh, coats the mouth too, as far as, uh, I'm not sure if it's an off flavor necessarily, but it's definitely very creamy. Well, and it's bitter. Mm. Like it is like punch you in the face bitter. Yeah. It's almost got like a toothpaste flavor to it. Oh yeah. That's interesting. You, you say that and I, I can kind of see that. I wonder if it's uh, some of those like Southern hemisphere, New Zealand hops that can throw maybe some of those almost like I get like a berry type note off yeah. of it. And then maybe some of that mint. So maybe something like Nelson or Vic secret, something like that. Yeah. What's the one, what is that hop that gives off the, no, is that Peco? Am I thinking of Peco? Peco, gives, Peco gives, gives that mint, mint character. Yeah. 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 That that would make sense actually, because uh, that is a really unique tasting hop. But even after having a couple of sips and getting my palate to sort of adjust to it, I, I'm so I've got like a strong bitterness. It is. Yeah, I would say bitter. it's aggressive. Yeah, it's definitely uh, at or you know at the level of being you know astringent, where it's you know sucks all the moisture out of your mouth. But yeah, the mint character. That's uh, yeah, I think that's a better you know herbaceous and you know herbal that type of thing, which is uh, American hops are normally more on the fruity end of it you know so as far as to style i don't i don't think that the hopping is necessarily to style so i mean as far as appearance goes it's slightly hazy i don't think that's overly hazy i think that's still to style because it says it can be a bit hazy i mean it might be on the verge of being slightly out of style but i can see my fingers slightly through the glass so i think that's okay as far as that goes the aroma was okay i don't think it was a a big a punch as it possibly as it should be with a double IPA. You know, I think the aroma is more in the single IPA category because really with a double IPA, you want that punch of, of hop. So as far as aroma goes, I'd probably be in the mid range, and with appearance, I'd probably be in like the 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 two ish range, kind of mid range as well. But as far as the the flavor goes, I mean, the stringency is definitely a, a ding as far as that goes because I mean it's definitely taken away from the drinkability of the beer I think I know I, I, I'm like this glutton for punishment for some reason and I like you know when it comes to like when I like when I drink sour beers I want them to like destroy the glands that I can't like I want like a sub three pH that just wrecks your palate and I, I kind of feel the same way about the bitterness like it is so aggressive and offensive but I kind of love it <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I don't think it's so aggressive that it's, you know, by any means undrinkable or anything like that, but you can definitely feel it in your throat and you can feel it in your mouth. I mean, for sure. It reminds me of that um, about 10 years ago, that like bitterness fad of like how many IBUs can I cram into the beer? Like a um, uh, double arrogant bastard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, there's, you know, 120. It's there's so many IBUs you can't even measure them anymore. Wait, what was that? What was that dogfish head beer? Remember they, uh, they, yeah. well, there's no dogfish head. No, wait, no, dogfish head did. I, I'm pretty sure it was, was that. It one of the 690 120s or no, 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 no. It was, no, they in, did it was one that ex- was like uh, 600. It was like 600 IBU. They did the right. highest IBU beer in the world. Uh, or at least the commercial, the highest commercial IBU beer, because I think I pushed that limit at some point in my ridiculous <laughs> brewing career. Uh, but yeah, and I think they released it at Extreme Beer Fest, and I, and um, 
and it, it was like gone in a minute uh, because people were just like wild to try it, it but it was something like 600 ibu or something stupid it's like hot sauce with scoville it's like how hot can i get it am i gonna throw up this time or <laughs> so mad this is this is what i mean glutton for punishment like i love this ridiculously hot shit too like i'm just like yeah, I'm, I'm fucked up i'm, I'm screwed up it's just, i have problems but but matt is it true though like i'm thinking about this uh, you're probably going to know a little bit better, but I remember like your palate can only taste up to a certain IBU anyway. And like anything after that, you're really not going to really yeah. taste. I believe it's anything over. It's like 90 or a hundred, anything after that. It's they, they say it tastes the same. The sensation on your palate is probably different as far as that goes. Like, you know, if you chew on a hop pellet versus drinking a beer that has hop in it, there's definitely a different sensation, even though there's a threshold of IBUs and that type of thing. But yeah, supposedly it's 90 to 100 is like your your threshold as far as that goes. I mean, yeah, that's theoretical IBUs too. I mean, when they sent that uh, dogfish beer to a lab, I think it only came back as like three or 400 or something like that. But when they brewed it, math calculations they had, it was like 600 or something. Oh, yeah. So which means like us home brewers doing our beer smith calculation, like if I, if I think I'm brewing a 50 IBU beer, it's probably nothing close to that yeah it's better to do it by by your own personal taste a lot of times like brewers can taste a beer and be like oh yeah it's probably 10 or 15 ibus or it's this or it's that or whatever and then there's no by their palate now because you mentioned scoville uh, i'm now curious if there's a correlation here at all uh, because with in the heat index with scoville you can build a tolerance to where you can take higher heat and not taste it as much is that does the same thing happen with ibus and I'm, I'm talking to you like you're just like this extreme chemist scientist and know all this shit, but, but I'm curious now. It's like, I wonder. It probably does, but I don't think necessarily that you perceive it as much. You'd probably go through palate fatigue, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm sure you've judged IPA categories, right? Like after the fifth or sixth IPA, the bitterness might not be coming through as much. You still kind of taste the fruitiness and stuff, but those aggressive bitterness beers kind of taste a little bit better after you've had five or six of them. I often cite the lupulin threshold shift yeah which is why people are demanding these like crazier and crazier hopped beers i'm not going to get into what that is if you are curious what that is look that shit up the struggle's real <laughs> drink a pilsner every once in a while and it'll make you enjoy heady topper again oh yeah <laughs> What do you think of the overall impression? Yeah, overall, um, I mean, I don't. I think the the bitterness definitely needs to to come down a bit. I mean, I don't know if this bitterness is derived from the dry hop. Maybe the dry hop is too heavy. I don't think it is because normally with the dry hop, it'd be more plant mattery, and the I think the bitterness would be a little bit different. I think possibly the you know sixty minute or ninety minute charge, depending upon what they did for the boil, was maybe a little bit too heavy, or something like that. And as far as it being an American. Uh, IPA or double IPA rather I would like to see more of a citrus note and less of an herbaceous uh, you know minty type uh, character to it so I mean uh, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with the ferment or anything like that I just think that maybe the recipe needs a little bit of uh, tinkering with so I'd be in the uh, I'd probably give it like a 30 33 34 because I don't think it's completely out of style or anything like that I just think the recipe needs some tinkering Great. Well, that's it. We got another one wrapped up in, in the uh, books. Uh, Matt, again, appreciate you taking some time with us to judge 22A double IPA. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, and let's pick up where we left off last week with PJ of Navigation Brewing Company. Well, and you guys did really great, uh, especially early on. Uh, you know, you talked about being that community place, but you you guys did a lot to actually connect to the community. So if you just take Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club on its own, 
you guys hosted us for a big brew day. So we got to brew in your system with you guys, which was really cool. You hosted our competition a couple of times. Uh, so we're able to, you know, take over your, your brewery for a, basically a most of a day uh, for our competition. And, you know, those little gestures go a long way. You know, the, certainly with the club, I know the guys really appreciated it and have spent time shopping your brewery, but we also had some folks that would be part of our competition that got exposure to navigation and, uh, you know, those things we appreciated, but it showed that you guys were still humble enough to say, we'll give back to the little guys. You didn't charge us for any of this stuff. I mean, you let us brew in your system without charging. It was really cool. It was a lot of fun. We got to do something that a lot of guys that hadn't done before. And, you know, you got to sell some of the beer at, at the brewery, which we know we thought was really cool that our beer was on draft at navigation. And it was, it was really awesome. So, and now taking it one step further, you know, we're just a homebrew club, but, you know, we interviewed Justin Negrotti recently, and he really talked up how much you had helped him starting his brewery. And he even leans on you today uh, for advice and, and uh, to answer questions. And I think that speaks a lot to the character of navigation and that you guys are keep living up to that reputation of being humble and trying to give back. Yeah, we try. I mean, one of the things we started off, Marco, was when we started off, Bob always said, if a home brewer ever comes to us, if they want a recipe, if they want, he, he wanted to deal with that. He wanted to give it to them. He has no problem doing that because Bob was a home brewer. I mean, he had letters. He used to, this is pre-internet, right? So he used to write letters to Jim Cook because he couldn't get a, a particular hop he was looking for. And Jim would turn around, write him a letter back, and send him the hops. I mean, it was a few ounces, right? Because he's only, you know, he's doing the doing the whole hops. This is pre-pellets. You know, this is, you know, he was doing whole hops, and he was just looking for something that he was going to put together. And Bob would, you know, enter that beer into a competition, and he would write a letter back to Jim and or whoever he get, he would write letters to everybody. He would write letters to the, the grain people. I used your grain for this, just so they they would know about, you know, where they, what their products are being used for. And he's just a little guy, you know, and these guys were, you know, distributed into massive breweries, but he always felt as though, I, I you know, he came from that homebrew roots. He knows exactly what it, it, it what it's like, and he wants to help his passion you know, starting off as a home brewer, he wants to help anybody that wants to go forward with that. Me, what I do is, you know, when it comes to the business end of it, I just want to extend that help to anybody um, that's looking for it. Ben did that to me. I mean, he literally gave me his entire um, package that he had submitted to the TTB and the federal government and then the state government and then the local government and said, here's everything you need to start your brewery. And I thought that that was an awesome gesture. And I said, I will never, never turn away anybody who wants to come and ask me. I'll, I'll give you the honest truth. I might talk you out of building a brewery, but and it's not for competition purposes because when I tell you how much work it is, it is a lot of work. I mean, you, 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 it's, it's, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. And that's just if you're brewing beer. That's not even if you're, you know, you, now you're dealing with the tap room, you're dealing with, you know, ordering supplies, making sure everything's on time, shipping. We talked about shipping earlier. It's a pain. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the demands of the beer industry. So you talked about how Bob is, 
you know, a, you know, 25 year, 30 year brewer. And I'm sure 25, 30 years of brewing uh, has you brewing a certain way or brewing certain types of beers, but the beer industry continuously evolves and innovation changes. How have you guys dealt with innovation? How receptive has Bob been to the changes in the beer industry? Um, you know, there's some that he, there's some things that he, he, he loves to experiment, uh, you know, being a homebrew, you, you're going to experiment, you want to, and you want to learn new stuff. You're, I mean, that's a big thing with the, with the brewing process itself. You're constantly learning something. There's always something new there. Uh, there's always somebody else's, you know, an idea that somebody came up with that you say, you know, well, let's give it a try. Um, you know, I, I think of the new England style IPA, really, that was just a, a change in the, in the process in which we're brewing it versus the ingredients we we already had on hand um you know but bob himself he's big into german beers loves to brew germans loves to brew belgians um you know anything dark that's right up his alley um he likes you know west coast ipas guy brews an unbelievable west coast ipa but jumping into the things you know messing around with you know um there's a lot of stuff to be messed around with um, but I guess what I'm getting to is, is, is you just gotta you, you gotta try to stay true to the standard of the beer, and and, and just do it the best you can. Um, it's tough. I don't want to crap on stuff because it's, it's no, just, no, not not that you should. But I'm, you sometimes know. we've seen uh, and we've we've said this on the show a bunch of times, and uh, you know Phil and I would agree that if we were opening a brewery tomorrow, the first two beers that we'd have on draft are a you know milkshake IPA and a uh, a smoothie sour because uh, you'd be an idiot right now to have a brewery that didn't have one of those things on draft doesn't mean we like them doesn't mean we uh, we want to drink them but I mean it is at the end of the day a business so that's kind of the my the question is like you know you don't have to like things but uh, you know you guys are a business you you got to make money you got to pay the bills uh, so imagine you get to a point where even if you don't like how something's going, if it's there and, and the consumer demands it, you're probably going to do it. Uh, in some cases. Yeah. I mean, we, we've really staged, we've shied away from um, getting into some of what I call the gimmicky stuff. Um, we'll, we'll just, we'll just, that's, that's why we'll, I love you. PJ. <laughs> Thank you. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the response I wanted. Stay away from the gimmicky stuff. That, let's put that down as a strike match boil slogan right now. We're going to do that. Stay away so, from the gimmicky stuff. You know, we, we, we will brew, you know, we, we, we have experimented with the sours. We are messing around with them. Of course, the first, the first sour we put out, it had to be a fruited sour, you know, so you got to get worse. 300 pounds otherwise nobody's nobody's gonna but what bob likes to do is he likes to mess around with things like that and say okay we'll give them what they want but then we're going to introduce them to something that's a classic um you know the, the recent one we brewed was similar to a you know a red a, a flanders red um which you're not going to get i don't know how many breweries are doing that i, I be honest with you it's tough to keep up um Everything seems to be fruited sours. Uh, you know, they're good occasionally, but like I said, Bob likes to introduce different things to people. Um, you know, we we started brewing a culture early on. We brewed things like a cot busa early on. When's um, that coming back? It actually just back. We renamed it. <laughs> Did you? All right, because I love that beer. That was great. <laughs> we brewed it. We brewed it. It did really well. Um, 
Well, the hard part is, is you know, that's another funny thing we could talk about is, um, you know, the names of beers seem to be more important than the style sometimes. Um, and what we, we, what we do is we typically just name our beers right after the style. We have Navigation Brewing Company, Cockbooster. We have Navigation Brewery, Goza. We have Navigation Brewery, Belgian, Trappel. We have a navigate, you know, that's what we do. But well, you, you're saying that people don't find the name Cot Booster sexy? Is that what you're saying? Actually, they had fun with that one. Yeah. <laughs> they had fun with that one. But the but it, it's tough, it's tough to sell those things in a can or anything else. You really need to have a tap room to so people can come in and experience it. And you have a, a staff that can explain the beer how it was brewed or what any certain processes were done or what special ingredients are in that, um, that helps when you have a tap room. If you just try to put that in a can and put it on a shelf, it, it ain't going to sell um, because nobody knows. It. The only people who are going to go out and buy that is some beer geek that's going to be like, I've never seen a Kapusa before. I want to try it. Um, you know, I'm thankful that some of these other breweries, some of the bigger breweries are starting to do stuff like lagers and pilsners. Um, um, and they're, you know, they're having fun with them, but it, it's, it's nice to see that, um, you know, getting some other beers out there other than you just do New England IPAs, which I love. I love New England IPAs. Uh, I like them like everybody else, but the milkshakes in the, in the sour and the fruited sours, um, we will brew them, but we're not going to, they're not going to be regular staples. See, I can appreciate that model. And, and again, we've talked about this before. You know, I like the idea that, you know, you, you got to meet demand. The consumer tells you we want something, I get it. But to have a diverse portfolio of beers, and then when you walk into a brewery and you'll have a New England IPA, you'll have a fruited sour, but you'll also have a Pilsner or, or some other type of lager, like you'll have some, you'll attract people with a certain style, but then you'll show them what your forte is you'll show them what you guys are, are known for and I, I that's the model that i think is best because then you have something for everybody yeah that's the, the idea is to really have something up there for everybody i mean we got a pretty diverse board right now i think i have you know i got a dark wheat up there right now we have an irish stout we have a, uh, a double an imperial porter we call it double porter um we have uh i you know, it does a whole bunch of them. We got pale ale that's going to be better. That we'll put our, I'd start regular pale ale on soon. Uh, we have a Pilsner that's going to be tapped hopefully this week. Um, also have another, you know, a double IPA, a, a, you know, a hazy double IPA. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll try to keep at least two IPAs up on tap at least at all times, um, whether it's a, a double and a, and a just a double IPA or a single IPA. Uh, in a pale ale, because, you, you know, that's what people want. So you got to keep one of those on tap at all times. But it's it's great to introduce new beers when we can do like a, you know, like, like our summer ale is coming out soon. That's a pale wheat. Um, you know, it, it's it's super, super crushable. It's, it's a beach beer. Um, and people will come in for that when the, when the, when the when weather, nice, nice weather gets here. And, you know, they'll be able to crush a few of those. But you really want it. You really want an array of variety up there because you never know who's going to come in the door. Um, you know, and a lot, sometimes everybody, you know, there's always that guy that comes in that, you know, they, you know, the fifth wheel, he'll come in and he's like, uh, I'm a Bud Light drinker. What do you got? You know, we'll put a milk stout right in front of him. Nice. Have at it. Peppercorn Porter. Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, having a, Having a diverse portfolio is important no matter what you're talking about, whether it's beers on a, on a, 
on a draft list or um you know your 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 401k portfolio right whatever it is it should be a diverse portfolio and there are breweries out there uh there's some out in the midwest that are hanging their hats entirely on one style of beer and it's you know when the fad of fruited lactose sours goes away and that's the only beer said brewery has made for three years how are they going to change how are they going to they don't have anything else they can't just slowly migrate into another you know another group of beers in their portfolio they've never brewed them before maybe they have in small pilot batches oh shit just threw my mic in my face um but you know, you guys have a very diverse portfolio, like you said, from lagers to Belgians to English styles to the American beers, and you're able to to change with the times, just like you were saying. You can go brew what the business, you know, requires you to go brew, and when the business changes, you're already ready because that's what you do anyway. Correct. I, I mean, there are exceptions to that rule. I mean, there's always exceptions to every rule. You're going to have that, you know, that said brewery that's just really good at what they do. And they, they can continue to do that because they're always going to probably have a, a clientele for it. Will they sell as much as they used to? Maybe not. But, you know, it it, 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 it might work out for them. It's again, it's a, I think it's a select few. I think the, the diversity in it, you know, or they're just going to go, you know, the other thing, they'll just go hire a new brewer. <laughs> when, they, when they need to brew something different um but the diversity in it is is it is a, is a you know i grew up you know going you know when when i was of age obviously except for a few different times when i was in vermont um but i grew up you know visiting breweries where you would go in it was the atmosphere you just hang out but it was always an opportunity to try something different and it was always you know you always had your go-to everybody has their go-to but you you went in there and you're like huh never seen that before i'm gonna i'm gonna try that and then the next time you know it's like it's like anything else you go somewhere the first thing you order is a reuben you want to try everybody's reuben you know it's it's what you want to eat so it's the same thing with the beer you go in and you might find a you know hmm, that that has a, that place had a, a first time i've had a baltic porter that thing was awesome i'm gonna I, next time i go out i'm gonna look for one and then you you would order that and maybe get it on a flight or something like that at a different breweries and see how it tasted versus the other one. And you say, Oh, maybe I didn't like Baltic quarters. Um, you know, you, you just gotta, you gotta, you, you really need to keep that going with, with, with all the breweries. I think, I think that's part of the, the brewery experience. You have a guy behind the kettle that likes to brew beer and nine times out of 10, he wants to brew more than one beer alone. Um, and, and I think that's I think that's why you see a lot of the, the bigger industry people going to these small places, um, you know, fleeing their big jobs at, at, at said breweries and, and uh, or, or they or they're losing their brewers because they just they're moving around. Uh, I see it in the I see it in the industry where you get guys that, you know, they jump around a lot. Uh, they'll brew for some place for a few years and then they, they don't like the direction or they want to go do something different and they hop on. And, you know, whether they're building their resumes or whether it's just a passion, um, you know, I think they're, I think in the end of the day, a brewer wants to brew different beer. I think that's part of it all. Um, it, you know, it, so you, I just, we just keep our business model like that. And I think because Bob has been like that, you know, someday when he decides to move on and, uh, and whether it's me or somebody else that decides, you know, we, you know, whether we hire somebody else or whether I stop brewing, we're just going to continue that 
uh, that model because um, in the, in the sense we're here, we're beer drinkers ourselves. We like different beer, period. You know, I, you can't call yourself a beer drinker and just drink one beer. Only, okay. No, that's, that's an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really what it is. I hate to be too blunt about it, but that's what it is. Okay. <laughs> um, but I enjoy beer and people that enjoy beer would probably, I, I would guess would, would continue to do that by trying different things and always trying something new. I just, it, to me, it, it, it's, I think it's the best business model there is. You may not become a, a, a billionaire, but you're gonna, you know, you're gonna do pretty well and you're gonna live comfortably and you can go to work every day with a smile. Uh, we do joke around about this. Uh, nobody comes, uh, nobody becomes a brewer to get rich. <laughs> you do it because you like to do it. So, so what's next for navigation? Where, where do you guys go for here from here? You know, pre pandemic, we were looking for new space. We essentially needed to grow the size of our tap room. Our tap room needs to be about the size of our entire brewery and tap room. Now uh, we're, we're fortunate enough that we have outdoor space that helps us in the summertime, but we kind of, came to a point where we sort of need a beer hall uh you know and i would think somewhere on the lines of like four to five thousand square feet just for the beer hall and then you know the brewery can be small itself you don't again we're 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 we're, we're really spitting out beer we're brewing twice a week and we're you know so two beers that means two beers every week two beers go on two beers come off so we're, we're that constant rotation um you know we we just it, it, that's bringing in new people all the time too so we're trying to trying to make make it more comfortable. I mean, obviously we're in an old industrial mode. We'd like to step up that you know that that comfort level a little bit for the customer, um, and just have a place that's you know the same vibe, the same you know camaraderie with people, but just you know just a different atmosphere where it's it's more inviting. Not uh, to uh, not to put any pressure, but staying in Lowell. It, you know, we, we've, we've tossed around the idea. Uh, Chumsford was wooing us. They were trying to get us booked there. They had some sort of grant program. Um, it really wasn't, it wasn't beneficial to us where they, where they, where they were kind of isolating the breweries to be. Um, it, it, it was tough. And thank goodness I didn't go over there because all those office buildings are shut down now. Um, um, you know, we, we, the idea is to stay in Lowell. You know, I've, I've also, flirted with the idea of um have almost adding another location like so we would essentially keep our location here and then um start a new location maybe somewhere else in the state um you know further out west on a on a, on a farm type property um and make that actually the, the 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 production place and then you know when you have two locations you can ship beer back to the, like the tap room area but more of a production area and, and kind of work out of my backyard type of thing sounds terrible it, yeah it's, <laughs> but but that would be that would be ideal but it, it, i mean i would be so i'd be so like, jealous like uh i mean just uh open land brewing like it just sounds awesome that's yeah that's that's my dream that's right there but i think i think you know for business aspect we're probably going to keep it in mole um you know and just try to find a place that's bigger we are going to be making some improvements here at the brewery where we're going to be taking over a little space and then uh, going to be moving some stuff around it'll add it'll probably add you know uh, maybe like 600 700 square feet to the tap room but when you're already a small tap room that's that's a good size so it'll you know we'll, we'll grow a little bit on that end um 
and then there's also possibilities of doing some stuff outside as well, year-round stuff. But again, um, with the can sales, what we've seen there going going through, um, you know, out the door. I think we, we we're I think we're going to be okay if we we can we can ramp that up a little bit. I think the next thing for navigation to do is uh, to have another collaboration with Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. I'm, I'm always game, always game, Marco. I'd love to have you guys come down. Yeah, We've I mean, been actually uh, talking about collaborations quite a bit lately. Yes, yes, we're working on quite. I, that was one of my. That was one of my things. I want every year. I set myself a goal, um, you know, and I just try to step up the game on stuff. And this year. Uh, well, with last year being the shutdown, you know, we weren't able to go to like our, our, our Brewer Guild meetings. So we weren't able to, you know, we had, we would have like hockey games. They'd be like a, uh, you know, we did a hockey game, I think the year before. It was a lot of fun. You get to meet the other guys. Being in the industry, it's really tough. You don't get to go up. You really can't, unless you have a day off and you're going to go, you know, hop up a few places or if you're driving somewhere or if you need to go pick up some you know something you need to borrow from somebody you don't see other breweries so what we just what i decided to do this year is i wanted to step up the game and do collaborations more collaborations and then kind of bring it outside of our our little niche circle of, of, of people that we have that we deal with all the time you know justin being one of them from channel marker um you know we did a we did a collaboration with them we did another one with uh well they well we went up there and then they came down here we did one with uh Amory's tomb before that you know, a few years back, um, we wanted to do, so we wanted to get out there and do some more. We have some other ones coming through. We have, um, uh, lost shoe, uh, lost shoes. Is it lost shoe? Lost, lost shoe. shoe. Lost. Yeah. We're going to be working with those guys soon. We're sometime in early May. I think Bob and I are going to go down there and they're going to come up here. Uh, Sean hooked us up with the guys up in New Hampshire at the, um, where are we going again, Sean, on that uh, one? Long Blue Cat. Long Blue Cat. It's like, had to be Long Blue Cat. Yeah. And, and we're talking with Kelson as well. Yep. Kelson was the other one. And then I, I reached out to Shire Brew House out in Western Mass. Um, got a response from those guys. I actually really want to go out there bad because they're into the same stuff I'm into. So um, we're going to, I think that's going to be a good relationship. Um, trying to think, what's the other one? Oh, I reached out to Spicket River. I think we're going to try to do something with them. Time and Materials. Uh, he's a new guy. Yeah, he's in Reading. Reading. Um, we, we've spoken with him. And I, we're, we're going to see how it goes. Um, yeah. We're going to try to do them. And then get, there's a few other ones that we, we reached out to. We just haven't heard back from them yet. Uh, so we're, we're going to just wait. Like I said, we're going to wait on that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, for us, because, you know, I'm, I'm selfish and I'm all about uh, – you know, enhancing the Merrimack Valley homebrew club name and, and, uh, and experience, uh, you know, we've, we, we're totally curious about, uh, doing a, a more legit collaboration. Last time we worked together, it was part of our big brew day and we were doing something for the club, a little bit of fun for the club. And, and, uh, you know, you guys got a little bit of beer to, to sell as a thank you, uh, but we'd love to set something up so we can do it again this time, maybe for charity. Uh, we uh, we're close to uh, ALS in our club, so we uh, would love to be able to do something for ALS. And uh, I don't know if you guys have done that before, but I think it'd be kind of cool if we uh, put our heads together. It'd be a fun little project. 
That would be fun. That would be fun. We're actually doing one right now for, um, uh, it's an organization for mental health. I'm not sure which brewery is running it, but we're, it was, it's similar to the all together where oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. it's similar to that. We're going to be doing another one of those soon. Um, but yeah, we, we're always game for that, especially if it's going to a charity. Uh, you know, what they do is you essentially do all, you do the proceeds to a charity. Um, it, it's, it, it works out well. Um, it's time. Which uh, do they have? Don't they have one for ALS? Yeah. Uh, well, there's ALS for ALS, uh, which which we haven't participated with. We did try to, but we haven't. Uh, but we make a donation uh, every year uh, to a- ALS. Uh, we had uh, one of our members unfortunately passed away from ALS, uh, uh, so sure. we're um, we're we're in on that. But but I think it'd be really cool. Uh, you know, I I think that we had tons of fun last time with you guys and we always love going down to navigation and checking you guys out. So we'd love to do it again. It'd be really awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm game. We just got to try to nail down a date yeah. and got to get you guys in here at four o'clock in the morning when I'm in here. <laughs> that, that sounds good to me. Uh, and then, Hey, we, uh, it's always better to have a bunch of extra cleaning hands. That's if there's anything we can do, it's clean. We can do that like champs. Uh, well, PJ, Hey, listen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know, uh, you know, you guys are busy. I, I'm looking at you right now. You're at the brewery. It's 930 at night and you're at the brewery still. So you, it looks like you had a long day. I appreciate you giving us an hour of your time uh, and we look forward to catching up with you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Marco, Phil, Sean. It's good to see you again. We'll um, see you on a uh, Friday night. See you Friday, buddy. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again. Thanks guys. That's it for this week. Next week, we will have the final show of season one of Strike Mash Boil. And we've got some special guests, Matt and Erica from the Brew Roots podcast. And in that show, we're going to dig into the OG Hazy. That's right, the German Hefeweizen. That is next week here on Strike Mash Boil. The Strike Mash Boil podcast is produced by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, an AHA-sanctioned club. Follow us on Instagram at Strike Mash Boil. Join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC, or send us some feedback at Strike Mash Boil at MVHBC.com. Uh, barrel aging isn't just easy um or i'm uh, sorry I'm, I'm gonna do that part again sorry yeah i'm, I'm reading it and, and thinking at the same time uh, i'm gonna go back a, a sec uh one sentence three two one fortunately all of us